ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Almost four years on from the Black Summer bushfires, communities that lived through the disaster are still recovering. For me to see families and small children completely devastated, I'm starting to tear up now. It just brings back so many memories. It was just bedlam, I think. It was just bedlam. We know that the children have reactions to lights and sirens and are still stressed by it. So the community have come up with a practical way to help kids with that anxious feeling they get when they hear the sound of a siren. Led by the Batemans Bay Fireys, a new emergency programme based on play and fun is helping kids prepare for any future threats. In moments of crisis, we want kids on our side and we want them to know us as a friendly face that's there to help. We don't want to be the scary figures, especially in times of trauma when they're quite concerned and worried and everything seems a bit uncertain. That's what we're there for, to try and help them out and make them feel better about the situation and ease their nerves. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajak Country, Perth. But first, we're going to head to the Kimberley in Western Australia and believe it or not, we're going in search for Bing Crosby. Now, I'm not talking about the blue-eyed Christmas crooner, but a local Indigenous man. And the story behind his name sheds light on a piece of Australian history – we're going to head out on the road with reporter Aaron Park. It all begins telling stories around a campfire. It's a hot night and I'm camped by a dry creek bed with my friend AK, full name, Annette Cogolo. Her nephews have slow-cooked kangaroo tail in the hot coals. And after a feed in a cuppa, it feels like the right time to ask her about something that's been bothering me. What's with these strange names that people have in the Kimberley? They were given these names and they just give no, oh, we'll give you a potato or we'll give you a shovel. Across northern Australia, she tells me, she's noticed the same thing. Members of her own family with names that just don't make sense. Some with the names of European dictators. And there was another old man, Stalin, and Hitler. He worked on Louise up near Christmas Creek, all that area. And there was another old girl named Shirley Temple. They had their own Aboriginal name. They had their own skin name. They knew who they were. But white people came and said, oh, I named him this. Like funny, like a joke. Then she says another name, the name of someone who is still alive. There's also a Bing Crosby in our family. He lives at Yaganara now. There's a man named Bing Crosby. Yes. Imagine going through life called Bing Crosby. An Aboriginal elder from the edge of the Great Sandy Desert carrying the name of an American Christmas crooner. So how did generations of people in Australia end up with these names? Are they actually slave names? And how are they impacting life for people today? I want to find out, starting with Mr Bing Crosby. All right, time to hit the road? Yeah, hit the road. A few weeks later, we're plunging into the desert in my battered four-wheel drive. We're going to meet Bing Crosby, Kalmajeri man. Thank you so much for having me along. A dozen residents are gathered on the grass in the afternoon sun, sipping cups of tea and watching the kids buzz around on bicycles. 
and among them, a thick-set man with a beaming smile is hunched over the bonnet of a beaten-up Toyota. So tell me, what's your name? Bing. Bing Grosby. Do you like living here? Yeah, this? good place. Life is good. <laughs> we assemble at his kitchen table with a spread of old photographs and files. Bing's mother was called Shirley Temple. There are no records to show who gave her the name. And how did you get the name Bing Crosby? That money and I wouldn't put out his name. Money, boss, put saying. It was the manager who gave him the name, he says, the boss of the station. See, when Bing was born, the Aboriginal people living in the station camps had little control over their lives. They worked hard, but not for wages like other Australians were entitled to. While the native boys are busy with the horses and cattle, the girls work at the homestead. Today, they're collecting their weekly rations from the station store. Rations from the store are part of their wages. Laws were in place stripping people of basic freedoms. All Aboriginal children were made wards of the state. People could be detained without reason. Local police enforced segregation laws. And people working on cattle stations, they could be arrested just for leaving the property. And when babies were born, AK explains, the station manager and his wife would choose the name. When the women had their babies, the manager actually gave them the names of their child. The parents or the mother weren't aware of uh, what names were given. It was standard practice throughout the first half of the 20th century. At the first point of contact, missionaries, police and pastoralists had the right to record whatever name they wanted for an Aboriginal person in the all-important native welfare files. Sometimes they were affectionate names. Some pastoralists even gave hand-picked staff their own family name as a sign of respect. But often the names were careless or insulting. Bing Crosby reckons he was middle-aged before he discovered he'd been named after someone famous. Did you know who Bing Crosby was, the singer? Never did anyone knew. I don't know. Yeah, I don't He didn't know about Bing Crosby until he was... He was listening on the radio when he heard... But he's a singable. Yes, that's how he heard. Jola, I think it's Jola. Yeah. He heard it on the radio that he was a singer... Famous singer. This Bing Crosby, the American one, he was one of the biggest music stars of the 20th century. In the 1940s, his music was all over the radio, which was the main point of contact with the outside world for people on remote Australian cattle stations. And you can pick up that photo and his photo. <laughs> Bing Crosby, over there, famous, another Bing Crosby. Look at that. Bing doesn't seem too fussed about the name he was given. But for AK, while she can see the funny side, there's something more sinister going on. A joke made at the expense of powerless people that's lasted a lifetime. I just don't understand why these names were given to these people. Maybe because they did, they just made fun and say, no... You know, I know, I know a famous name. Maybe I could just give this person this name. I think it's sim- similar to the 
slave plantation time in America, similar. How our people were treated. I've headed up the highway to sit down with a well-known local pastoralist. At the last minute, she asks to remain anonymous. I don't really want to be identified. The history of how Aboriginal people were treated in Northern Australia, it's a sensitive subject around here. Sometimes they um, took a name from the station name and other times the station um, manager just sort of couldn't understand what their name was. There was never anything derogatory that I have ever been aware of. She's right that the naming practices were in keeping with the common attitudes of the time. Aboriginal people were considered inferior. They'd probably never vote or travel anyway, so what did it matter what you called them? But Amy says overall, people were treated well. They were well cared for. They may not have been given wages or very low wages, but they had their whole family there with them. I don't think there was a, a, such a thing as slavery. Certainly they worked for no wages, but they were well looked after, the majority. Back at Yakanara, I'm paying a final visit to Bing. I've got to get another car and broom. I'll get boiled up this time. Hey, Bing, it's so nice to meet you. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Thank you for sharing your story. Yeah, no worries. Erin Park reporting from Yakanara and her full radio documentary can be heard on the ABC podcast, Background Briefing. ABC Australia Wide. Let's head now to the Gold Coast. You might remember in October we heard about the difficulty para-athlete Amy Tobin was having with securing accommodation. She's now living in a hospital ward and she has been for weeks, despite the fact she's not sick. The para-athlete is homeless after being forced out of her NDIS-funded home because she did not want to share it with strangers. Mackenzie Collihan has this story. Amy Tobin is healthy, but for the last three weeks has been living on a diet of hospital food and spends her days roaming the halls of Rabina Hospital's specialist medical unit because she has nowhere else to go. The 29-year-old was admitted to Rabina Hospital last month after dislocating her wrist in a fall, but despite being medically cleared the very next day, doctors won't discharge her because she's homeless after being given a notice to vacate her NDIS-funded home. I've been wandering around a little bit, just trying to stay positive. It's pretty tough being in hospital at the best of times, but when you're not sick, it's pretty rough when, you know, you're just waiting out day by day to to see what happens. Miss Tobin is what Queensland Health calls a social admission, a colloquial term used to describe a patient who no longer has any acute medical issues, but who health professionals determine cannot be safely released back into the community. She was born with cerebral palsy, uses a wheelchair and requires around-the-clock assistance with everyday tasks like preparing meals and bathing. The ABC revealed in October she was told to leave the specialist disability accommodation property that she lived in alone for the last 18 months because new tenants were moving in. If you don't want to share, you shouldn't have to, considering no able-bodied person at this age is forced to share with someone they don't know. 
Despite being promised she would have the entire three-bedroom house to herself when she moved in, the provider backflipped on their agreement when the National Disability Insurance Agency began cracking down on providers that were claiming their participants' entire housing budget so they could live in a house as a sole occupant. The policy, designed to protect vulnerable Australians from being overcharged, had the unintended consequence of forcing people who lived alone out of their homes during a housing crisis. Amy says she would be on the street had the hospital discharged her sooner. I have a wheelchair accessible van, but it's not really feasible for my support needs for me to live in my van. The removalist costs were nearly $1,000. The storage cost has been, is about $400 a month, um, and that's a lot, when, as I said, when your only income is a disability support pension. A spokesperson for the NDIA said it was working closely with Miss Tobin to ensure she was receiving the help she needed and to have her discharged as soon as possible. But Amy's options are limited. She requires a property that's purpose-built for someone with high physical support needs. Only one of the more than 60 specialist disability accommodation properties on the Gold Coast she looked at was deemed suitable. Her support coordinator, Fiona Lawton, said that property, an apartment in Broadbeach, was leased to someone else just hours before the NDIA approved Miss Tobin's updated funding plan. It took the agency four months to process the new plan. The worst part about it, we had a suitable property to go to in September and NDIS didn't turn over a plan quick enough for me to be able to move in there. While she acknowledged the NDIA had a difficult job to do, Miss Lawton says the system has let Miss Tobin down. I am shocked and stunned <laughs> that in December 2023, we are still seeing very, very clunky, damaging applications of government policy for people with disability. So all of that together has put Amy really behind the eight ball and rendered her incredibly vulnerable. This week, Amy was approved for 180 days of crisis accommodation funding through the NDIS with a budget of $146 per night. The challenge is finding a wheelchair accessible hotel or motel room in that price range during the Christmas school holidays. I don't know anywhere on the Gold Coast that you can get for under $150 a night, let alone a wheelchair accessible it's been huge financial stress as well and the mental and emotional stress trying to work out where I can go that's actually accessible. The agency knows we're in a housing crisis, cost of living crisis and we have someone who's on a disability support pension who at every turn is being told that she needs to fund any out-of-pocket expenses associated with her medium-term accommodation. Miss Tobin is worried her time is running out. Patients in Queensland public hospitals are only entitled to 35 days of free treatment. If doctors decide their condition is non-acute, they are then charged a daily rate of $74. Her $400 a week disability support pension would not be able to cover the cost. I fear what it's going to be like for other people who are, who are not able to advocate for themselves and end up in this situation. Counting down the days with no destination yet, but hopefully we'll find one soon. Amy Tobin finishing Mackenzie Callaghan's story. Almost four years on from the Black Summer bushfires, communities that lived through the disaster are still recovering. Along with the physical rebuilding, there's also ongoing trauma. As communities prepare for summer, one local council on the New South Wales South Coast is trying to help families better prepare. James Tugwell has more. 
Jacqueline Rogue still vividly remembers the Black Summer bushfires. She was volunteering with the SES throughout the disaster and says hot, windy weather still brings back dark memories. You can still see it when you drive around Yurubadala. The, the trees still haven't all recovered. All the houses haven't been built. Um, we're, still, we're still not out of it yet. For me to see families and small children completely devastated, I'm starting to tear up now. It just brings back so many memories for us as well. Um, it was just bedlam, I think. It was just bedlam. We know that the children have reactions to lights and sirens and are still stressed by it. According to the Internal Displacement Monitoring Centre, more than 14,000 children were displaced during the Black Summer bushfires. Already this season, schools in the Yurubadala Shire have been closed due to high fire risk, homes have been lost and families evacuated, some for the third time in five years. We just want to have that connection with our community. We, we could do better as far as communication. That was where the idea for emergency playdates came from. At these special playdates, children can have a go shooting water from the fireman's hose, switching on highway patrol sirens, or learning to drop and roll by crawling through a smoke-filled inflatable house, feeling through the haze for the comforting foot of a firefighter. His road teamed up with Yurubadala Shire Council's Louise Hatton to organise six emergency playdate afternoons for families, bringing together all the emergency service volunteers from around the community for an afternoon of learning and fun. They're going to hear sirens, they're going to meet men in, and women in uniforms, um, but it's, it's not going to be a scary kind of serious activity. It's very playful. And we also know that... In early childhood, we know very well that children learn, and actually we all do, learn so much faster through play experiences. If you've got children, you can't just go, oh, I'll just grab, you know, a drink bottle and some food and I'll be right. I can, you know, you might need to bring nappies, bottles of milk, um, water, um, favourite toys, storybooks, something to occupy them throughout the day. So a, a whole plethora of things that you wouldn't have to do if you're just taking an adult um, or um, you know your, your pet. You've got things that you might need to do for your pet but this is a whole different realm of things that you need to be prepared for. You, you know it's um, amongst all of that then you've got the emotional issues about um, how to keep your children calm and stay calm. Bayman's Bay RFS captain Jesse Tong and his crew were helping kids learn that fire alarms can save lives. So we're using this to teach kids to get down low and go, go, go. Some children have had to go through the most traumatic experience that they'll probably be a part of in their life, losing homes and possessions and everything like that. So it's a real difficult time. In moments of crisis, we want kids on our side and we want them to know us as a friendly face that's there to help. We don't want to be the scary figures, especially in times of trauma when they're quite concerned and worried and everything seems a bit uncertain. That's what we're there for, to try and help them out and make them feel better about the situation and ease their nerves. The playdates are planned to become an annual event, helping the community prepare for whatever emergencies may arise. For Jacqueline, that's what it's all about. We've had one today, a family, a, a father with a, a little boy, he's just moved to the area and he's, he just said, I am not prepared, I need to be prepared. That's it. That's, that's why we're here. Jacqueline Rogue from Batemans Bay SES, ending that story from James Togwell. You're listening to Australia Wide with me, Sinead Mangan. Life for Nolene Darlene McLean does not slow down at the age of 93. In fact, 
Life has never stopped for the former champion diver and recently decorated swimmer. With a pacemaker installed only a few months ago, the South East New South Wales resident dived into the pool at the Australian Masters Games. Four gold medals later, Nolene says she feels alive again. Floss Adams has this story. The pages you hear shuffling is 93-year-old South East New South Wales resident Nolene Darlene McLean. She's flicking through an old photo album of swimming memories. She then stumbles upon a poem a friend wrote about her in the 1940s. When Naomi Hur was in full swing, they thought of Pam or Tish. She ended up with Nolene, but should have been just fish. She's superwoman a la mer. Say, has she feet or tail? She's faster than a battleship. To her, a shark's a snail. <laughs> That's the sound of Nolene completing laps at her local pool in Jindabyne in the snowy mountains. A lifespan in the pool, Nolene is a champion diver and competed at the post-war Empire Games of 1946. And now, she's a decorated swimmer too. Last month, she competed in the Australian Masters Games, swimming backstroke and freestyle. I went over to the Masters Games unexpectedly and uh, after quite a serious operation and uh, I just wanted to uh, prove that I was alive again and off I went and uh, unexpectedly came home with four medals. Four gold medals? Yes. Nolene had a pacemaker installed in July earlier this year, which she says has given her a new lease on life. Before the operation, she had not been swimming since 2017. It's made a remarkable difference. I was really struggling before to feel more like the old Nolene again. Uh, I just wanted to celebrate life. Your son, he has a disability, right? And you were telling me about why you got back in the pool and it was for him. Can you go through that, please? Yes, I just wanted to give him hope. And uh, it's been a very difficult journey for him. It was just to encourage him to keep on keeping on. Tell me about what you did in the late 50s and what you towed around outback Queensland and why you did it. (laughs) There had been stories in the papers that a lot of deaths with people drowning in rivers and dams. So I set off with a Fiat 1100 car and a trailer behind with a a large swimming pool, which I erected in different towns and was the town of Fortnight and travelled about 2,000 miles throughout back Queensland teaching swimming in towns that had no swimming pool. What kind of looks did you get from people when you arrived in (laughs) town? Amazed. (laughs) Amazed, yes. How many kids across your lifetime do you think that you've taught to swim, Nolene? Oh, there'd be thousands, thousands, with all the, my own swimming school and being attached to schools and teaching in schools, many thousands. So it, it takes a lot of life and persistence to do what you've done, to mm. put a portable pool on the back of your car and mm. rip across outback Queensland. <laughs> Why, why did you do it? Like, obviously, you, you did it because kids needed to be taught to swim, but why within yourself? What was that driving force? There was a need, and I had the ability to 
do something about it and ful fulfill that that need. I never really thought about it much. It was just something that I was able to do. And uh, being Nolene, I did it. <laughs> On Nolene's 80th birthday, she celebrated it by skydiving over Mount Kosciuszko. She recalls the moment before jumping out of the plane. And the instructor said, are you nervous? And I said, no, let's fly. <laughs> so it was a wonderful experience. <laughs> my best high dive ever. And my swimsuit didn't even get wet. You've achieved all these things. You've had many careers, faced many challenges. What's next? Well, I've got one, one thing on my bucket list. Maybe now that it's since I've got a, a heart that's beating properly. Uh, maybe, maybe, who knows, maybe I'll achieve it. But I would dearly love to go hang gliding off Sublime Point in Sydney. That's on my bucket list. You have to hand it to her hang gliding at the age of 93. Nolene Dearlene McLean speaking with our reporter, Floss Adams. And that is Australia-wide for this week. The producer of Australia Wide is Alex Hyman. Kath McAloon also works with us and I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you have a great weekend. Cheerio. ABC Listen.